Well, you know, the Bible, well, if you've read the Bible much, <laughs> you don't have to get very long into it to get this realization, but the Bible is full of tension. Tension. Have you ever read anything in the Bible and you thought, well, it said this over here, but it says this over here? And they don't seem to always kind of connect easily. <laughs> and some people, those who are really fighting against the Word of God, would say, well, there's contradictions and, and there's errors, and therefore you can't really trust the Bible. Well, I found the Bible to be very trustworthy, and uh, it is the Word of God. And God does speak to us through it. And God, by the way, is much greater than us, right? Matter of fact, even in Isaiah, we read, right, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are greater than ours. We can't fully grasp all that he is and thinks, but he has made himself known to us. And as he does, the supernatural, all-powerful God is making himself known to a temporal created people. All right, so we find tensions in the Scripture. Now, tension can be good. Tension, many times, you know, if you have hypertension, you're taking medication, right? So you don't have hypertension. All right, but, you know, tension can be good. If you're walking a tightrope uh, across a, a chasm, you want to make sure that that rope is tense. You don't want a floppy rope, you know, especially halfway through. All right, there has to be tension. I mean, if there weren't some tension in the universe, right, if there wasn't gravity and pulls and all kinds of things, everything would just be flying everywhere, and, and it wouldn't be in the order that it is. All right, just a couple of thoughts that way. But, you know, it is challenging as we deal with the tensions in Scripture to, uh, to find, you know, really what it means and how to put it together. But as we allow these tensions to come together, we have insights into God and what He wants for us that we wouldn't have otherwise. Some tensions that might exist as we look at the Scripture, I think of, uh, we're to trust God, right? We're, we're to trust Him for everything. But it also says that, that we're responsible for our actions. <laughs> that, that's a tension. Um, we're to be generous, but we're also to be those who are good stewards and, and save and appropriately prepare for the future. All right. We are not to judge, but we are to be discerning. Yeah. How do all that fit together? Um, we're to respect and listen to those who teach and guide us in the faith, but, but the Apostle John writes in his letter that because of the Holy Spirit, we don't need a teacher. <laughs> you have both of those things. We are to work out our salvation, but it is God who works in us for it to happen. We are to love our enemies, but we're to hate evil. We are to know God as Father, you sang about that, but we're also to fear Him. These are tensions for us. Well, today, the topic in this last part of Hebrews is really representing a tension. In Hebrews 11, the author gives us examples of people of faith. We've already been told of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. And as we come to the end of this chapter, many more examples are given here in today's text. Some named, some not named, but all people who have lived out their faith. 
And today we'll find a, a list of those who we look at as victorious in their time on earth, in their faith, but others who do not see victory, but are afflicted and suffer. And the author says this in the midst of writing about these people, that they were too good for this world. You know, I think that's another tension. We're too good for this world if we're people of faith. Well, the Bible says, doesn't it, that we're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, right? Humility is a characteristic of the Christian. Certainly it was shown to us clearly in Christ. On the other hand, we are to realize in Christ who we are and the situation that we are in is one that God says here in this passage is too good for this world. We are people of much greater position than what is admired in this world. And as people of faith suffer and are persecuted, they may be scorned here. But the author says that they have a good reputation with God. So may the Lord speak to us today as we look at this tension, as we finish this chapter. So I'm going to read and look at separate passages like we have been doing as we go through the end of this. So we'll start with verses 29 to 31 here in Hebrews 11. Chapter 11, starting at verse 29. It was by faith that the people of Israel went right through the Red Sea when went right through the Red Sea as though they were on dry ground. But when the Egyptians tried to follow, they were all drowned. It was by faith that the people of Israel marched around Jericho for seven days, and the walls came crashing down. It was by faith that Rahab the prostitute was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God, for she had given a friendly welcome to the spies." An element that we have seen clearly presented throughout this chapter is that even though the people that are pointed to here as examples of faith are shown as shining examples of what God has done, we know through reading the Old Testament passages about them that there was much failure in their lives, even disobedience to God. There are no perfect examples here in Hebrews 11. There are no perfect examples here at Community Christian Fellowship. <laughs> there are no perfect examples anywhere in humanity, except in the only one perfect one who became human to be our Savior. Hebrews is pointing constantly to Jesus, and he is the focus of our faith. He's the one that brings about life change and victory and even the process of making it through affliction to the next life because he's the only way. And the writer of Hebrews wants the Jewish believers in Rome to be very clear that any hope in an Old Testament tradition is not going to get them what they really need. 
And it's a message to us today, too, isn't it? In several ways. One is, we need to make sure that our hope is in Christ, and not in ourselves, and not in any traditions, but in Him alone, for we're lost without Him. But we also need to realize the encouraging word that's here to us as the author of Hebrews points to the fact that these are in the listing of people of faith even though they messed up a lot of times. Anybody here messed up a lot of times? Yeah, yeah, okay. You think there's some hope for you? You bet there is. Jesus came for you. And he came for people who are messed up. People who think they don't need help are in trouble. Jesus said that, didn't he? Only those who are sick need a doctor. Yeah. And he talked to the Pharisees who thought they had it all together. They had interpreted the scriptures so well and made sure they put burdens upon everybody to try to keep them. But Jesus says, we're sick. We need a doctor. And he has come for that reason. And so what we see here in this passage is that flawed lives are shown here as people of faith in a faithful God. Not hope in our own strength and success, but in the faithful God. And so we have these three illustrations in the passage we read. The people of Israel walked by faith when they passed through the Red Sea. We know their story. They they needed to get out of Egypt, and certainly they were glad to be delivered by Moses, but there was a lot of challenge in him getting them out of there, certainly not only with Pharaoh, but also with the people themselves. And in the midst of it all, I mean, they're down there getting ready to cross the Red Sea, and they're, they're saying, we're going to drown. We need to go back. There was a lot of, we need to go back stuff from the people of Israel. God had a plan. And they're listed here in the midst of their mess as people of faith because they crossed the Red Sea. They had to take a step, didn't they? God delivered them. God opened the sea, but they had to walk through. Well, that's like us, isn't it? The Lord is leading the way. The Lord opens doors that we think can't be opened. The Lord guides us, but we have to walk through. <laughs> That's faith. That's trusting God and doing the right thing. That's doing what he wants us to do. God made it possible. He directed their path. And not only did he get them through, but he protected them, remember, from the Egyptian army, right? And they were told here in this passage that when the Egyptians tried to follow, they were all drowned. The author then points to the walls of Jericho. We sang a little bit about Jericho in one of our songs this morning. I don't know if you noticed that. But uh, Jericho, um, the walls falling as the people marched around them for seven days. We know that Joshua led them, and God directed him as to what they were to do. It wasn't the normal pattern in army planning. <laughs> All right. Yes. Uh, the people, though, did, again, what they were directed to do. They didn't understand it all, but God led them. And it took them faith to keep marching seven days and then to blow trumpets 
to shout and expect the walls to fall down. I wonder after they did all that, if they really thought it was going to happen. I mean, you know, faith is interesting, isn't it? Our faith is in God that can do it. But even so, in the midst of our faith, sometimes we're a little bit uh, uncertain. Is this really going to happen? Lord, I'm trusting you for this. Is it really going to happen? So imagine when it happened, they went, whoa, great, man, woo right. And that's where we are lots of times. It was by faith in God and in his ways that there was victory. And then we read of Rahab the prostitute, who fits right into that story. Uh, she hid the spies who came in and checked out the land. She guided them to a safe escape that time, and she had them promise her that they would take care of her and her family, which they did. Her family was completely rescued from the invasion. But notice what Rahab's uh, sidebar is, right? How would you like to be known that all your life, right? Rahab the prostitute. I mean, even in this time, it was this, I mean, she's a person of faith, but what's she labeled as? Rahab the prostitute. Wow, again, a great evidence of the fact that God doesn't look at people like we do or the world does. People can have a big mess in their past, but still have the power of the Spirit of God in their lives make a difference. She was a pagan. She was not one of the tribe of Israel. She was an enemy of Israel as far as her national connection, but she was a person, a woman of ill repute in a world dominated by men who God raised up and named as one in the line of those who are in the hall of faith. But do you know also she is in the line of Jesus? <laughs> She's just not an anybody, is she? She's a pretty special gal. You see, if you read in Matthew in the genealogy of Jesus, it says in Matthew 1.5, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. So Rahab was David's great-great-grandmother. Pretty good line she's in. Which is the line of who? Jesus, the Messiah. Rahab, though not an Israelite, identified herself with the people of God. She believed God. She acted in faith. All these flawed people who had faith in God and were used by God. May our names be among them. Now the author here quickly speaks of many others some who were victorious and some who suffered and died without victory in this life. And I want to look at verses 32 to 35 at this point. How much more do I need to say? I would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms ruled with justice and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. 
They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back again from death. (laughs) Among this list of victorious ones are many more flawed lives. Let's think about this list. Gideon demanded signs from God and led Israel to sin even when he made an ephod. Samson was sexually promiscuous and broke his covenant with God. Jephthah vowed foolishly to sacrifice his own daughter. David committed adultery with Bathsheba and tried to cover it up by arranging the death of her husband. We don't read that here. These are people of faith who God used to see victory and point to the coming Messiah. Gideon, a fearful man, hiding really from the enemy, and God called him, who who me, you got the wrong guy kind of thing. But he acted in faith with a band of only 300. God had limited the number of soldiers that he used, but he delivered Israel from a huge Midianite invasion. God directed them to blow trumpets. Oh, I love it. We got all these trumpets everywhere. That's great. All right. Smashed jars, waved torches, which threw the Midianites into confusion and resulted in victory for Israel. Barak was also fearful, refused to lead unless Deborah would accompany him. But he was called and led Israel to victory over the Canaanites when God brought a sudden downpour that immobilized the enemy's 900 chariots in the field. Samson, blinded and bound by the Philistines, prayed for strength and brought down a house, destroying himself and all of his adversaries. Jephthah, the disinherited son of a prostitute, defeated the Ammonites. David, Israel's greatest king, as a young boy, defeated Goliath with a sling, stating, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Samuel was a judge who stood for righteousness, brought victory over the Philistines, and anointed David as king. And as the author then here speaks of victories through faith, we also see and see the allusion to and the thoughts of as we read this text of Daniel, who shut the mouths of lions, and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, who quenched the fury of the flames, and the widow of Zarephath, who received her back her son, raised to life again by the prophet Elijah. They had faith, and God brought the victory. We see it. We find it. You could give stories of faith today. Many of you could stand up and say, hey, I've been through some times. I wasn't sure I'd get through. And God was calling me to stand for him, and I did. And you know what? I give him the praise. But there's more to this chapter. Because the author turns to those who suffered and died. Let's take a look at verses 35 to 38. But others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at, and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half, and others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, just destitute, excuse me, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, 
wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. This group that's listed here, we don't see any evidence in what's written of them seeing victory as far as what's considered victory in this life. They suffered to the end. By the way, as I read this, I think of New Testament believers. Certainly, we know through the book of Acts, there was much persecution. We know persecution has continued throughout time. Jesus said it would happen, that we should be aware of that. We should even rejoice when we're persecuted for his name's sake. It's continued on. But these are actually Old Testament prophets and saints that suffered in the same way. And as the author has taught us throughout this chapter, throughout this book, faith is looking beyond the now and living for what is ahead. Certainly that was the hope here for those who were tortured and imprisoned. They look forward to life after the resurrection. Even though Christ had not come, their hope was in God's promise of the Messiah and that they would have life everlasting. read some of those thoughts in the book of Job, don't we? Where in the midst of his suffering, he would say things such as, even though he slay me, I will still praise him. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The hope of the resurrection is not just post-cross, <laughs> throughout all time. And that's where our hope needs to be. Justin Martyr, an early church father, when looking at the very place where he and his congregation would be put to death for their faith, said this, remember brothers and sisters, they can kill us, but they can't hurt us. We're told in this passage that some were killed by stoning sawing in half and by the sword. They lived in the wild and wandered without proper clothing, food, and shelter. Those who were receiving this letter in this book of Hebrews were people who had already realized and experienced some persecution. Matter of fact, when this was written, things were a little more calm, but there were still people who were in prison for their faith, some of their brothers and sisters they were aware of. They knew what persecution was, and many have said that this book and the dating of this book seems pretty obvious as you read how it's written, is before the falling of the temple, before tremendous things began to happen in greater ways of persecution for believers. It's a preparation. Remember we said this book is full of encouragement, but it's also full of warning. Be ready, but don't be afraid. You know, this is not written so you'll say, oh my goodness, this is too much. It's written to say, hey, it's not been too much for others. God has been with them and he will be with you no matter what happens. 
I don't like the thoughts of these things. I don't like the thoughts of being sawed in two. That's quite frightening. But we have tremendous stories of faith throughout time of those who have been empowered by God to stand in the midst of things that nobody should have to stand in. And God has enabled them. There have been talk of those who have been burned in the flames and never felt the fire. You kind of have that example in the Old Testament, right? That was the Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego thing. They didn't even smell like smoke. And they say, oh, well, you know, the flames weren't too good. Well, then they threw all the servants in that had pointed the finger at them, and they all burned up. Something was going on there. God can do things that we don't think can be done. <laughs> That's why he's God. Our trust is in him, the all-powerful, all-knowing. And he will give us strength as we have faith in him to go through whatever comes our way. And that sounds like just a flippant phrase, but it's not, right? And how do you know it unless you go through it? Hmm. How can this be written about these people unless it happened? It did happen. They made it through. And someday we'll hear their story. I think we will, you know. Heaven's going to be full of just rejoicing in what God had done, and we're going to hear all those stories and what was a problem before is suddenly a victory. And, and uh, even though the other victories happened in this life, there's a lot greater victories that happen as we enter into fellowship and eternal relationship with God. And it says they were too good for this world. That which the world says is good is much different than what God says is good. These who are misused by the world are honored and blessed by God. Craig Coaster in his commentary on this passage says this, the world may judge the faithful to be unworthy, yet in truth the world is not worthy of the faithful. Remember the story in the book of Acts Acts chapter 5, where the disciples were taken in and arrested for proclaiming the gospel, and they were told not to speak of Jesus again, and they were flogged. They were beaten for their faith. And we read in verse 41 of chapter 5 that the apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. There's something that happens that's really supernatural among saints that have gone through extreme persecution. Read the stories, even current ones, where God is there. And not only are they feeling the victory of getting through maybe, but also the fact that they feel the sense of joy in the midst of of suffering for the Savior. They, they relate to the suffering. Paul wrote about it, didn't he? He says, may I uh, know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Don't really sign up for that, do we? 
Don't stand in line and say, I want to volunteer for that today. We ask for volunteers to help work with the kids. It's not suffering, really, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Somebody thinks so. We don't volunteer for this. But if it happens, the Lord is with us. The encouragement is to remain faithful in light of what others have gone through. Uh, today we're to be encouraged to remain faithful to Christ as we consider what Christ suffered for us and what the early Christians went through so that we may have access to the gospel. Think about it. If they had not gone through it, we wouldn't have the gospel to us. If they hadn't kept preaching, if they listened to the, the leaders and said, no, we're going to stop, we, we, we understand, we're, we're not supposed to do this. No, they kept going. And we are too. And also, as brothers and sisters suffer throughout the world, we are to be faithful. You know, it's an encouragement to your brothers and sisters worldwide who suffer that you stand for Christ too. We're in this together. Your failure affects other believers. <laughs> your failure in faith. doesn't mean you're not going to fail in life, but failure in faith. If you're not trusting God, it, it does affect others, doesn't it? Not only those around you, but I think it has a worldwide effect. We are connected mysteriously by the Holy Spirit. And your standing for Christ has a worldwide impact. Don't forget it. And you have the ability because of what Jesus has done and who he is in your life. Now the author then closes this chapter with a summary and future promises for all people of faith. So let's look at verses 39 and 40. He said, all these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised. For God had something better in mind for us, so that they would not reach perfection without us. All the people in this chapter earned a good reputation because of their faith. They're commended by God in this passage of his word. They have a good reputation with other believers as we read of this, right? It's to show us that even though they're messed up like we are, God honored them because they had faith in him. And it's true for us too. They have a good reputation. You know, people are struggling for a good reputation in this world most of the time, right? We want to do well in front of our family, in front of our friends. We, we want to do well in our business. We, we, want, we want to be recognized and, and, and be one of the better ones. I hope that's it's not a bad thing. God has made us. I mean, he's the perfect one. He's made us to strive for good things. I, I'm not saying that's bad. But it can be bad if all of our life is determined and our value is determined by our worldly reputation. Because it's very hollow. I'm, excuse me, I mentioned this before in, in working with Chinese scholars. You know, their whole thing in coming to the United States, of course, is to get a superior education and to be a superior in their work. Get their PhD, be at the top of what they do. And so many we have talked to have said, I got what I came for. I have attained the level that I was dreaming of, and now I'm still empty. Huh. Do you think that the Super Bowl champions have the ultimate fulfillment in life because they've reached the ultimate level of success in football? And if they were honest, and that's all they have, they would say, wow, still searching. 
we're all going to still be searching if we're trying to find our reputation in anything besides what God has done in Jesus Christ. But in Him, we have all we need. And if we're not experiencing that, it's usually because we're not really trusting Him for all we need. We can be His, but still be kind of doing our own thing. But that's the warning here, isn't it? There's an encouragement that in Him we have it all and He'll take us through and that He's all we need. But there's the warning that if we don't continue to trust Him, we're going to be missing all that He has. Those who would have been the abusers and torturers of those listed here probably at the time felt like they were people of such great authority and they could do what they wanted to do and everybody had to submit to them. But you know, at the end of the day, when it all comes down to the end at Judgment Day, these people who had no reputation on this earth will be recognized as people of reputation by the people who persecuted them. There's going to come a day when everything will be clear. Don't think that the things of this world will last. Even those who abused them will realize that they were wrong and that the ones they persecuted were right. Hopefully many in this world, so that they themselves, and we know history, that's happened. Those who are abusers sometimes come to realize that this faith in these people is real. Sort of like the centurion at the cross, right? This man, and he is the son of God. The author then states something he said before. He says, they did not receive all that God had promised them in this life, okay? By the way, none of us receive all that God has promised us in this life because we're still wrestling with this world. But we're in a different position than these Old Testament saints. That's what he's pointing out. For he says... God has something better in mind for us, that's all of us, right? All that he's writing to, all believers, as we read this together, so that the world, so that they would not reach perfection without us. Kind of an interesting statement here. What does that mean? What are, why do they have to wait for us? <laughs> because, you see, they were waiting for the same one that we're trusting. They were waiting for the perfect one. You can't be perfected unless a perfect one perfects you. There was no perfect one available until God sent the perfect one to earth. They were anticipating him coming. And so we are all in this together. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but when you're going to be in heaven someday, if you've trusted Christ and you have your the assurance of his life in you and your sins are forgiven and you're going to be with him, these others are going to be there too. And you're going to be able to talk to David and Gideon and Barak and all these other people listed and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. You know, sometimes that kind of overwhelms me. 
Me? Talking to them? Yeah. Moses? Yeah. Abraham? Yep. Paul? Sure. Keep going. <laughs> Anybody listed there? Yeah. We're all there because of Jesus. The perfection they were waiting for is now ours, and so they're perfected by the same thing. That's really what the author is saying. They would reach perfection with us because as this is written in the century when Jesus came and died and rose again, that's what everybody was waiting for. And we have that wonderful assurance that he has done all that God promised. And if our faith is in him, our perfection is based on what he has done. And that which he has purchased becomes ours through faith. And it's like the children of Israel when they walked through the Red Sea, that God did it all, but they had to walk. And it's true in salvation. God has done it all. We had nothing to do with the fact that he would send his son. The only thing we had to do with it was we're so needy. And he loved us so much that he did it. But he did it all. Today we're going to celebrate communion right after this. Good time to do it. We think about the fact that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed. Why? Because we were desperately in need of a Savior. And he was the only one that could do it. Do you believe that? There's only one. Only one way. Jesus is the only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. If you believe in him, he's the way to the Father. And in believing in him and in trusting in him, as we take the bread, as we drink the juice, we are saying, I believe in Jesus as my Savior. He's my only way. And it's a reminder. And it's also an illustration, too that as we take in those elements, that it is the inner presence of Christ in our lives that makes the difference. It doesn't come into us by eating and drinking. It comes in by faith, putting my faith in him. But it's an illustration of that. It's a reminder that this is the way we live. We, we don't live based on our own strength. We live in the power of Jesus through the Holy Spirit who is within us. Jesus' cup. He has lived a perfect life. He has suffered and died. He has rose again so that our sins are forgiven. They're paid for. And he has provided for us the presence of the Holy Spirit so that we not only stand in perfection through Jesus in the presence of God, but we are being perfected day by day as we head that road to heaven. So we're going to close today with remembering the perfect one as we take communion. As we remember Jesus, God's way of salvation. And we come, we come to the Lord's table today, admitting our need, remembering his great sacrifice, and thanking him for his love and his presence. Let's pray. 
Father, we do thank you for what you have done for us in Christ. As we come to the table of the Lord today, we come because he's told us to come. He said, remember me this way. So Jesus, we come to remember you, not just as history, but as the reality of our faith and the fulfillment of all that we need. May you bless this time. In your precious name, amen. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your perfect love is casting out fear. And even when I'm caught in the middle of the storms of this life, I won't turn back. I know you are near. Sing it out. I will fear no We're going to be looking this morning in a very familiar passage as we come to communion. As the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, before I get to the passage of what he says took place at the Last Supper and how that's for us, I want to remind us, I mean there were uniqueness there in Corinth and I don't want to make this apply to us in the sense of we're coming here to <laughs> eat a feast instead of take communion, which that really was about. But there is a phrase that he gives that I do think is important for us as we come to the communion celebration and remembrance. Where he says that we need, as we come, to examine ourselves before eating the bread and drinking the cup. Because we need to come with the attitude of honoring the body of Christ. I think it's good to pause just before we take the bread and the cup. Examine yourself. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. Come personally before the Lord. First of all, thanking Him for His love for you. But then examining yourself. Maybe you're here today and you've never really opened your heart to Christ to 
to take communion really is a, a statement that I do trust Christ. So if you haven't done that, this really isn't for you unless you have. And so I encourage you, you, you can take care of that right now. You can open your heart to him. You, you can admit your need of him and ask him into your life. And for all of us, certainly, if we have received Christ, we need his regular cleansing, don't we? He's provided it. 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all sin and all unrighteousness. So let's bring our failures, our sins before him because he's the one that's paid the price and know his cleansing afresh today. We thank you, Jesus, that it's not by our works of righteousness that we're saved or cleansed, but the mighty work that you've done for us on the cross. We acknowledge that afresh today as we come here to take the bread and the cup. May your spirit do your work in our hearts and lives in a very powerful way that we might be yours completely. In your precious name, amen. Paul received this from the Lord. He wasn't at the Last Supper, but Jesus made it very clear to him as he wrote to the Corinthian believers that this was what we were to do. For he said, on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. And take your wafer. And you know, we know this isn't bread, and we know this isn't the body of Christ. But we do know it represents it. And that's what this is about. When Jesus said to his disciples, this is my body. Certainly, they weren't eating his body. <laughs> but they were told that it was his body that was represented that would be the sacrifice that they needed. That's true for us, isn't it? Take and eat. Be thankful. Paul writes, in the same way he took the cup of wine, after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. Think of Jesus. Remember him. Thank him that his blood, represented by this cup, was shed for you and washes away your sin. We thank you, Jesus. You are our Savior. You are our hope. You are Lord. May we allow you to live in us and through us in ways that honor you, that we might be even as the people we read about today, those of faith who have a good reputation because of you.
Amen. Stand with me as we conclude with the rest of this song. A glorious light beyond all compare And there will be an end to these troubles But until that day comes I'll live to know you here on the earth I will fear I will fear no evil For my God is with me And if my God is with me Whom then shall I fear? Whom then shall I fear? Singing, oh no, you never let go Through the calm and through the storm Oh no, you never let go And every high and every low Oh no, you never let go you never let go of me. Let's sing that again. Singing, oh no, you never let go. Through the calm and through the storm. Oh no, you never let go. And every high and every low. Oh no, you never let go. Lord, you never As we finished uh, chapter 11 of Hebrews, it's all leading into chapter 12. And there's some great words of encouragement coming. You're going to have to wait two weeks, though. Because okay, Pastor Sandy will be here next week. But read ahead. It is encouraging. It's challenging, but very encouraging. Remember, we have a, a meeting right now, right after this, for members. Uh, if you're not a member and want to just stay and listen, you're welcome to. But really, uh, members are the one that have the vote and say about uh, the revised Constitution. We're not going to vote today, uh, not till December when we have our congregational meeting, but it will be an opportunity to ask questions and interact about the changes that have been made. So uh, let's close in prayer, and you can stay if you'd like. Lord, we ask that you would guide in this meeting to come. We thank you for guiding and directing in our time here today. May the things that you want us to know and, and practice be clear in our minds by your Holy Spirit, and may we be people of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.